y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. Now, for those of you new to the show, thanks so much for joining, because today actually might be your lucky day. Our influencer today has single-handedly revolutionized the understanding of our reservoirs. If you consider yourself a completion engineer or in any way involved with advanced technical analysis, you probably owe your fancy career in that awesome title to this guy. Y'all help me welcome the father of frac analysis himself, Dr. Bob Beret. Welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Big introduction. I love my introductions. <laughs> They're so fun. Okay. So... You are truly a titan of this industry. You have actually revolutionized it to the point that is tangible and quantifiable. And this has happened all over the globe because of your diagnostics and analytics. So because you really are the father of the secret sauce, we need to know how you got here. Why oil and gas? How did you begin? Take us back to the beginning. I mean, way back to the <laughs> beginning. <laughs> we want to know all the details. So please. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> well, let's see. I graduated from high school in 1973. If anybody remembers that awesome year, that was the year of the Arab oil embargo, when Ooh. everything went completely upside down in, <laughs> in the entire uh, global economy and in the U.S. especially. And when I graduated from high school, I had no idea what I wanted to do other than be an engineer. And did not even know there was such a thing as petroleum engineering. In that fact, is common. <laughs> yep, yep. So I grew up in a uh, medium-sized town in central Pennsylvania just off the uh, Appalachian Front, which is now where all the Marcellus Shale is. So mm -hmm. I probably did a lot of cutting my knees and shins on Appalachian Shale and <laughs> Mar Marcellus when I was a kid. But no, and I, I signed up for... Uh, just general mechanical engineering at Penn State, mm -hmm. and that's really all I knew, you know, that's what an engineer was. Yeah. And I got a call from this guy, never heard from him before. He claimed to be the head of the petroleum engineering department at Penn State, and I later found out it was John C. Calhoun, who was one of the Lucas Gold Medal winners yeah. and another father of the industry. Yeah, kind of a big deal there. Kind of a big deal, <laughs> which I didn't know anything about at the time. And he said, well, if you change your major to petroleum engineering, I'll guarantee you a four-year scholarship. And I said, well, I don't know what that is, but okay. <laughs> like, heck, that, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, because my family could, you know, they weren't very sure that they could afford for my brother and I had to go to college anyway, mm -hmm. so having a scholarship kind of made that decision for me. Yeah. And so getting into it was kind of an accident. Um, the accidents continued when I found out that Marathon Oil Company was who was providing the scholarship. Ooh. And that's after a happy my, accident. <laughs> yeah. And so after my sophomore year, uh, I had a field internship with Marathon, and then after the junior year, I had an office engineering internship with Marathon. And when I graduated, by that time, I kind of knew the uh, uh, the guy who was interviewing on campus at Penn State, another old Penn Stater who happened to be 
uh, I kind of think a couple of years later, he became the executive vice president and the CEO of Marathon was also a Penn Stater. So mm-hmm. it's kind of, they used to call him the Penn State Mafia, uh, Beghini <laughs> and, and Giardini, you know, the, so. That's not, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so when I interviewed with him, uh, as soon as I walked in, I won't quote what he said, but he basically said, we're not going to do an interview. I just, I know you want to go into research. You're going to the research center, but I'm going to just tell you about the assholes you have to work with. There. <laughs> so that was our interview. You can't, you can't give us all the detail of that one? <laughs> I don't know that I blame you. <laughs> no, no. So that was how I got into the industry and how I got into research. Okay. And uh, so starting at Marathon's Research Center was really, uh, I can't imagine a better environment for someone interested in technology and learning yeah the research center was never very big we were typically 200 to 300 people but we had geophysicists petrophysicists mineralogists we had numerical simulation guys we had the technical service group doing the reservoir simulation we had the special core analysis lab, the fluids lab, the PVT lab, everything oh God, in that's one so place. Cool. <laughs> everybody communicated. And so when I was there uh, for about uh, 20 years or so, um, I really kind of worked with Dr. Stan Jones, who was, I don't know if you have talked to him, he's what I consider one of the, you know, I don't know, foremost engineers in terms of core analysis and fluid flow and I mean he basically invented the unsteady state Klinkenberg permeameter and I worked on that together he's the one that really got me to understand what non-Darcy inertial flow is what relative permeability is and the one of the classic sort of seminal I've not spoken to him yet, but this can be a like PSA announcement that I'm coming for him. Yeah, <laughs> he lives here in Littleton. So, oh, so. even better. <laughs> yeah, but the, uh, expand my stocking. That's awesome. Yeah, the Jones-Roselle technique. If you've seen that paper on how to do unsteady state relative permeability experiments, but I so he and have. I, yeah, he and I worked together until he retired, and that was in the '80s, which. Another one of those, you know, industry catastrophes when we lost most of the really serious... Like the really serious guys, the gurus. Yep. yep. Um, so, yeah, during that 20 years, I kind of worked with him, did a lot of the development of special core analysis instrumentation, designed and built reservoir condition three-phase relative permeameters, automated gas-liquid relative permeameters, automated capillary pressure instruments. No way. Yep, so we're measuring all this stuff. And That's then, so cool. <laughs> and then you go to the reservoir simulation guys and you say, well, here's all this data. What are you going to do with it? Well, we're going to basically screw it all up and put it into a reservoir simulator. Oh, really? <laughs> and force it to match, you know, what we're seeing. So I, that know, if, I know a few of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that got me involved in, in numerical simulation. Okay. And uh, so I started working on uh, a couple of different reservoir simulators for near-well transient test analysis. And that eventually led into trying to understand fractured well productivity. Mm-hmm. So along the way, it was actually about a year after I started at the research center. So now we're up to 1977, 1978. Yeah. Okay, so... 
Uh, I had to live in Colorado here, that's where the research center was, for a year to be able to qualify for in-state tuition. So that's why you wait a year. I had to do that too. (laughs) So, uh, of course, Colorado School of Mines being right up the road, that was the place to go. Mm -hmm. So I enrolled there, and the first class that I had was taught by Charles Kohlhaas, and it was on stimulation. And in the class, he was talking about, you know, how to basically get acoustic signals from hand analysis of full waveforms and how to pick out compressional and shear arrivals. And then he got into fracture simulators. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that existed at that time, basically, was Parkinson Kern and Geertzman de Klerk. And he went through those calculations and... I said, you have got to be kidding me. Yeah, no kidding. Because oh this is God. like the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and I don't know anything about fracturing or mechanics, but I know enough about reservoir simulation. Because mm-hmm. one of the the mentor I had at Penn State, uh, S.M. Farouk Ali, you probably have heard of him or know of him. But oh, yeah. He's the one that taught me numerical simulation at Penn State. Okay. And, and his idea of an undergraduate, I love this, undergraduate, reservoir simulation term project now penn state only had 10 week uh, terms so it was kind of compressed okay but he felt that any uh you know senior level petroleum engineer in 10 weeks should be able to write a three-phase three-dimensional black oil simulator wow (laughs) are you kidding no that was kind of the class that was the individual project we've dumbed down a little since then yeah 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 (laughs) So with that kind of background, I thought, well, even if I just handled the fluid flow and the, and, the, and the transport, all I need to do is come up with an equation for the, the deformation. Mm-hmm. And so I searched around, and in the, uh, the good old Timoshenko and Goudier, I found this <laughs> solution from this guy, Boussinesque, who you know, everybody talks about how brand new this fracturing stuff is. Well, he published this equation for the deformation of a semi-infinite half space in 1885. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the equation that Geertzman de Klerk, Perkins and Kern, every frac model is based on, but it's dumbed down through what's called the Snedden equation, okay. which is a, basically a two-dimensional integration of this full three-dimensional surface deformation. So I said, okay, I can take this equation and I can numerically solve it, integrate it over the surface of the fracture, get put in the pressure distribution, yeah, and I've got a fracture simulator. Simple, right? Simple. <laughs> so that became my, my doctoral dissertation, um, which later became Gopher. That's what we called it from right from the start, Gopher, because at that time, Marathon, we were developing software in-house. We were on a kick for animal names. I was going to so, say, why Gopher? Well, gopher, gopher stands for Grid-Oriented Hydraulic Fracture Extension Replicator. Of course it does. Of course it does. <laughs> and so that was, you know, all the software were, were acronyms. So we had hippos, we had dragon, we had a whole bunch of animals. That, that was awesome. They were all acronyms that meant specific <laughs> things. So I went to the director of the research center, and I told him, this is what I'm going to do for my doctoral dissertation because marathons paying a part of the tuition and then taking time out of work to go to classes. And his comment or his response to me was, that's a complete waste of time. Are you kidding? No, because, oh, oh, they love the answer. 
<laughs> because fracturing is a commodity industry. This is 1977. Commodity industry, the service companies do it. They know all that we need to know. Don't waste your time. There's nothing left to learn. Whoa, very <laughs> different response than today. Yes. So possibly <laughs> How we little have, we do know. <laughs> yeah, possibly we have learned and learned how much we don't know yeah. since then. But So that was the, uh, the start. So I finished the, the doctorate, finished the dissertation, published it. First publication of Gopher was actually at a SP Numerical Reservoir Simulation Symposium in San Francisco, and I still remember that because I had a horrible time getting to the hotel. Uh, <laughs> that was in 1983, and uh, started using it with Marathon. So here I am still working in the lab, still doing the rock mechanics measurements, still doing the special core analysis. In fact, we built a high-pressure high triaxial cell to be able to do the mechanical properties mm-hmm. measurements and try to fit them into the simulator, try to understand how rocks really behave. Yeah. Uh, which is something that I highly recommend for anybody involved in stimulation is to look at the damn rock because <laughs> looking at logs and looking at equations and looking at theories doesn't do it. We're, we're dealing with real rocks, mm-hmm. and they have personalities, and... Uh, like Ramona Graves always said, rocks kind of like women. They remember every single thing you do to them forever. That is 100% true. Nobody mm-hmm. forget that saying. Yep. <laughs> Hysteresis and and geologic memory are real. And uh, <laughs> that becomes actually really important when we start talking about multiple fractures, multiple well cube developments. Mm-hmm. Because the first time you pump into that system... You've changed the whole system. Everything is different from that point on. Yeah. So anyway, developing Gopher, trying to figure out how to get data into it that made sense, going through the usual reservoir simulation problems, upscaling, resolution. How do you take a rock that's actually uh, heterogeneous on a grain level mm-hmm. and try to simulate larger scale behavior you know, on a, on a scale that a simulator can handle, numerical yeah. calculations can handle? Uh, so I went through all that, and uh, somewhere around 1990, I guess, 91, 92, um, the guy in the next office was Marathon's representative at this funny little group in Oklahoma called the STEM Lab Consortium, mm. and he didn't want to do it anymore. Cause, oh, he didn't yeah, want to? No, because okay. he, he had other interests. So Great he career choice. <laughs> maybe you should go to this next STEM Lab meeting. So I went. And met Mike Conway, who was, what, two years ago, the, the legend of hydraulic fracturing at mm-hmm. the HFTC. Yep. So I've known Mike and worked closely with him since about that time, 91 or so. Um, looking at that time, they, they, they were in, still had the prop and consortium going, but they also had a rheology and transport consortium trying to understand frac fluid rheology, trying to understand uh, how it affects sand transport. Question we're still asking. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, so they built this uh, big slot. In fact, we recently resurrected it, and we're still using it. It was a 16-foot-long, 4-foot-tall slot that you could actually pump real frac fluids, real propping through. Really? And understand how this stuff you know, transport it and how different rheological parameters affected transport. And so they were running these these 
tests almost randomly because mm-hmm. they really didn't know what the variables were and, and what to be chasing. And I said, well, I can model that. And I said, what do you mean? I said, well, I have I this, model that. this program, <laughs> Gopher, and that's, you know, it does non-Newtonian rheology and it does, you know, slurry transport. Uh-huh. But it's a, it's a dynamic fracture growth simulator. Yeah. So he said, well, okay, what if we just fixed the geometry? What if we actually gridded up the slot in really fine resolution, you know, like two-inch grids? Mm-hmm. So I said, I, yeah, it's a slight change, but it's you know I can do that. I can change the code, and we can have a static version of a ge- of you know fixed width, fixed geometry, fixed you know specifiable boundary conditions. So we started just modeling slurry transport in in the simulator, okay, and looking at different rheological properties, different slurry concentrations, different particle sizes, and then we started seeing it actually matches what we're seeing in the slot. So we actually That's did awesome. a paper a uh, long time, I don't even remember the date, sometime in the 90s, where we had uh, screenshots from the videos of the transport in the slot overlaid with the numerical results of the simulator, and we could understand what was actually driving it. And then we could start actually designing fluid systems that worked and figured out where the sand actually goes in the fracture, which used to be a huge mystery, <laughs> probably still is. And that's when Stimlab decided, hey, we can use this. You know, yeah. it's actually benefiting the research that we're doing. And then we started talking about the prop and conductivity and flowback and cleanup and production, which launched into a 30-year uh, adventure of trying to figure out how fractures actually do perform yeah. under producing conditions. Correct. Nobody still likes that. Um, <laughs> the paper I presented at the FRAC conference this year, 30-some pages of still trying to explain that because mm-hmm. nobody seems to be able to grasp that fractures are relatively inefficient when mm-hmm. you're talking about Ain't it the truth? three-phase flow mm-hmm. and inertially dominated restricted flow and convergence on a horizontal wellbore mm-hmm. and gravity segregation and capillary effects. They're not really very efficient. No. People really don't like to hear that. And I've almost come to to blows with some people who say, oh, no, the the surface area is, is huge and all the surface area contributes production. And it's like if it's no. 100% <laughs> water saturated, standing underwater and 1,000 feet away from the well, no, it's not contributing production. <laughs> and yet they still want straight rail perms. <laughs> yep. That was that was another thing that we had to, to understand as part of the cleanup process was, mm-hmm. first of all, multi-phase flow and we realized that straight line relative permeability. I mean, here I was spent 20 years in a lab measuring relative permeability. Yeah. It's like, we need to do this for prop and packs. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. But trying to do it on a reasonable scale with capillary end effects, discontinuities, trying to get to a high enough potential gradient and velocity that relative perms actually work. Another thing that people don't understand (laughs) is relative permeability is a viscous-dominated theory. It only works when the capillary and gravity forces are negligible and everything is controlled by viscous forces. I would agree. Which does not happen in the reservoir. does not happen over 90% of the length of the fractures. The relative permeability curves actually don't work in in reservoir simulators anyhow. It's one of the big problems with simulators. Hmm. So anyway, to do this, 
we eventually had to build 20 foot long propping packs to get a small enough capillary end effect and a big enough pore volume to get good saturation measurements yeah. and then we still had to run them at such a high rate yeah. that we were outside the, the Darcy flow regime so then we had to figure out how to correct back huh. for inertial effects okay. in a multi-phase flow system. So we eventually measured two-phase relative permeabilities for ranges of propent from sand, ceramic, resin coat from like 4070 mesh up to 1630 mesh and found that they're all the same bit you know it's, it's all the same pore morphology okay. fairly well sorted fairly spherical grains the pore structure is about the same absolute permeability course varies by orders of magnitude but all the rel perm curves are the same so hmm. we come up with a set of relative permeability curves that actually work for <laughs> propent packs in the range where Gravity and capillary forces are negligible, and viscous forces are dominant. That's quite a feat. Yeah, <laughs> and it took a couple of years. And it turns out the rel perm curves suck. They really do. <laughs> There's the crossover points at about 40-some percent non-wetting phase saturation, and it's about 9% of the mm -hmm. absolute permeability. So that's where most fractures operate. Okay. At the worst possible mobility ratio you could be at. No matter the change in, I guess, fluid or sand type or anything like nope. that? None of that really matters. Really? Yeah. Because well. you can't really get the water <laughs> saturation much lower than that because the water rel perm goes to like 10 to the minus 3, 10 to the minus 4. It just doesn't move. Okay. So if there's any water coming in from the reservoir, it has to build up to a point where it's mobile. Hmm. Because it has to flow out at the same rate it's coming in. Okay. Which means you're stuck in that in that hole near yeah. the crossover point. Okay. Same with condensates. If you have what people think, oh, it's a really lean condensate, it's not a problem at all. You do a flash and you get 3% liquid dropout. Mm -hmm. Okay. That 3% liquid drops out in the propent pack, it can't move. And you keep producing and it has to build up that condensate saturation yeah. until it becomes mobile enough yeah. to produce at the rate it's coming in. So now you've got three-phase flow. Mm -hmm. We've got water and condensate and gas all competing for the same space, and the gas is moving really fast, so it's got a hell of a high Reynolds number. Yeah. That was the next step. How do you figure out non-Darcy inertial flow for multi-phase systems because all of the conventional, you know, Cook's equation, Cook's beta factor correlations, mm -hmm. Geertzma's equation, they all assumed sort of an average Reynolds number yeah. for the system, which mm -hmm. is totally wrong because <laughs> each phase has its own Reynolds number mm -hmm. and the, the water or the liquid phase barely moves at all. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost Darcy flow or creep flow, but then the gas is moving at an extremely high velocity through restricted pore throats because of the saturation of the wetting phases. And so its inertial effects are, are massive. Mm -hmm. And so and then you put all this together. Okay, the combination of the saturation effects through the rel perm curves and then the multi-phase inertial effects plus crush plus time-dependent degradation of the propent pack yeah. plus you know the convergent flow, blah, blah, blah. And you end up with a really, really crappy looking fracture <laughs> even though it's 3,000 feet long and this is what drives me nuts about the current industry is we're doing these massive slick water jobs yep that's a secret sauce right now yep 
three, four, five thousand foot of half length, hitting wells in the next section over, blowing them offline, blowing flooding them out. Up. And we end up when you do, if you do, realistic, you know, production rate transient analysis and actually see what kind of stimulation benefit you're getting, you see effective frack length of fifty feet. Mm-hmm. But we keep pumping bigger jobs. Bigger and, saying, and bigger. More hammer, 3, man. 3,000, 4,000 pounds a foot. have no idea where it's going, how it's distributed, but more is always better, right? Yeah. So higher more, decline. <laughs> more money down the hole, higher IP, faster decline. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's where the industry is right now. Since Wall Street loves that so much right now. <laughs> yeah, until they change the rules. Right? <laughs> so anyway, that's, yeah, STEM Lab, getting back to the to the sequence of events stem lab decided that they could commercialize gopher so they decided that people need to have this this is 1994 was the first time that we commercially released gopher they've actually got the the first release on the bookshelf in there it's kind of hilarious (laughs) it was on three three and a half inch floppy disks tucked into a vhs clamshell case Oh, I'm so getting a picture of you with this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was the first commercial release, um, which practically nobody bought. Um, <laughs> we actually did, Marathon was using it, but because I worked there, so they didn't have yeah, to yeah. pay for it, right? It was theirs. And uh, we did license it to Halliburton um, because we needed uh, field data acquisition software. We need okay. some way to get rate and pressure data into it. And they yeah, had yeah. a system that they said, we'll give you our code. You can bind it in if you give us a corporate license to it for very little. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that was our first entry into the real fracturing world. <laughs> so from 1994, we had basically two companies using Gopher for basically no cash value or income at all. <laughs> And it's only taken, what, 9, 10, 11, 25 years. And now it's a global thing. Yeah, but it doesn't <laughs> happen fast. I mean, that's that's one of the things I think it's really critical for people to understand is the industry does not really like to... Pivot quickly. Pivot quickly or accept new revolutionary ideas. Mm-mm. It's it's very evolutionary. I, I say it's... It's almost a matter of waiting for the previous generation of experts to die off or retire before <laughs> new ideas actually start to take hold. You might not be um, wrong about that. Yeah. And you see all these new ideas coming out of every convention, and they're never adopted. No. And they never make it out of academia, and most of the time they're forgotten. So. Most of the time it's probably the right choice but no no disagreement <laughs> there but it's funny to see all the look what we found ideas coming out of yeah. new papers so yeah good new ideas are often swamped by bad good, new ideas bad <laughs> ideas yeah new bad ideas unfortunately well it seems that in these interviews i've been doing all roads lead back to the marathon testing centers so when they closed was there ever a plan to reopen them no that was uh, seems criminal, right? In that in that couple of year period, if you look back, that's when almost every integrated major in the U.S. shut down their research centers because they were all advised by essentially the same market research firm. Okay. That research is a money pit. 
it offers no value. It's just an expense. You don't need it. The service companies will provide all the research and product development that the industry needs. Operators shouldn't be involved. That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And Operators back have on all it, the data. Was, yep. And, <laughs> and service companies, I'm sorry, but they're just going to work on their profit margins and their products that they can sell. They're not really going to solve the operator's problems. That's not their, not that's their not concern. Their job, no. Yeah. Well, you, you hit on something. It, it doesn't really happen overnight. So I know that there is that old saying, when you come up with a new idea, you make it work, you pass it out to everybody, and then all of a sudden everybody comes back and tells you you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So what was that process like when you were getting Gopher from you know just in-house here in Littleton up to the global scale it is now? What pushback did you get and how did you get past it? Well, it was and still is actually painful because <laughs> there are still a lot of people who – well, let's go back to the beginning. The mm-hmm. beginning um, – the Perkinson current model had morphed into pseudo 3D models, but mm-hmm. they still had the same assumptions. They still looked like... So they didn't really morph. They didn't really morph. All we did is put a equation in that lets the height vary oh, somehow. Well, that's, that's it. it. That's it. But it's still a Perkinson current model. Mm-hmm. And you know all the, all the bad assumptions that were built into that of necessity, I and mean, we're talking about 1960s technology where... You didn't have numerical simulator digital computers. You had to do everything essentially by hand calculations or, or you know, charts. Mm-hmm. And that's the way those models were designed. But because they're classic analytical models, everybody, a lot of people in the industry said, well, they're, they're right. You can't argue with them. Mm-hmm. And if because your model, they were the founders. Yeah. Yeah. And if your model doesn't match the Perkins and Gern solution, it's wrong. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many how many companies, big companies, uh, that's that was their answer. They'd look at Gopher, they'd compare it to a Perkins and Kern model. Mm-hmm. Well, doesn't match Perkins and Kern. Can't be right. Can't be right. Yep. Well. And that's why it's taken you know decades. Yeah. To to get traction, and the first ten years was pathetically slow. I mean, the oh. acceptance was almost non-existent and we kept fighting and we tried publishing and just one at a time you get mm-hmm. people to use it and once they use it they realize then they it's realize it's like your epiphany moment <laughs> yeah yeah and what helped was when Stimlab got affiliated with protechnics um we thought well here's a really op- good opportunity because protechnics has got all these diagnostics and mm-hmm. you actually have access to a lot more uh companies, operators doing frack jobs yes. and running diagnostics and actually trying to understand what's happening with their frack geometries and what kind of reservoir contact they're getting. The evolution of the technical team. Yes, <laughs> which never worked at all, oh really, but because the <laughs> pro-technic salesmen weren't really interested in... Well, they were sales. They are sales. Yeah. yeah, they didn't have to be engineers. They weren't interested in data, right. and they never are, and that's fine because it's not their job. It's not their job. Yeah. But it did give us access to more companies and more data, mm-hmm. and uh, it helped us because we never really had trouble explaining the tracer response. We never had trouble matching the treating pressures, matching the tracer, matching the production, because we had all this lab work for decades yeah. feeding into it. So everything yeah. fit. It's all based on fundamental physics. It's all justifiable. We know where it all comes from. Yeah. We have... a 
at least we think we have a fairly good understanding of how the system works mm-hmm. and it consistently fits all the measurements that we can make and, mm-hmm. and that did help to win a few people over that's good now in the process of this you got to get data into the simulator yeah right? so that goes back to the technical team you're right and well I, a lot of it you. goes back <laughs> not to a technical team hmm. but to mike conway and i arguing with each other oh. every day <laughs> hour after hour after hour about about what input do we have? You that's know, called got, progress. That's progress. <laughs> I've never found that big teams add a lot to that. Well, I, I'm interested in your thoughts on the technical evolution of a completions team because what I have found, and having coming from a consulting background, is that you're right. Operators really, until probably the last five or ten years, they really didn't put that much emphasis on the data they were collecting. So everyone called themselves a technical team, but they were not Mm -hmm. actually technical specialists. Now they're getting to the point where they're trying to analyze, but I'm seeing big issues come up with how they're analyzing from hydraulic links versus effective links. Are SRVs real? You mean you're seeing simulations jacked up to the wazoo down in Mm -hmm. volatile oil land, which is the Delaware. So what's your opinion on the technical team and where are these teams not getting it? Because what is it? All models are wrong. Some are useful. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's make them more useful. (laughs) Well, in my experience, and this is me and just me speaking for myself. Um, <laughs> like the disclaimer. <laughs> yes. Every uh, every so-called integrated technical team that I've ever had to work with is not a team. It's a collection of siloed experts who refuse to give an inch or listen to anybody else. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and it starts from, from the petrophysicists with their, with their log analysis. And this is one of the issues that I fight daily to this point, even, even as of today. Uh, we have an expert petrophysicist, and he's processed the logs, and this is what you have to use. Well, sorry, it's wrong. It's not calibrated. The logs don't give you stress. They don't give you poor pressure. Mm-hmm. They're not tied to good defits. Um, the sonic data isn't corrected for saturation and borehole conditions. The mechanical properties are wrong. Let's start over. Yeah, and, start over. <laughs> yeah, and right away that that throws up money flags. Money and, flags. Yeah. Well, getting back to why we had to put in a full petrophysical log analysis package in gopher because it's for that very reason because they're not doing it right Hmm. and we almost never get the complete log suites that people say you need that was another fun thing when i started developing gopher and they said don't waste your time because you're going to need all these all these logs and all this data and stuff just to populate the model and nobody's ever going to do that nobody's (laughs) ever going to run the logs and it's like well, we have to find a way exactly to get the information that we need. Because what's the point of starting if you don't even have that information? Right. So, which goes back to Mike Conway because I was showing him how we get data from a log. And this, at that point, it was usually paper fan fold copies of field prints of logs. And mm-hmm. he asked, "Well, how do you get the data into Gopher?" Well, you zone up the log and you draw <laughs> lines on it and you average out the different curves and i got to that point and he yelled bullshit there's no way that anybody is going to do that 
Now, you also he, have to remember. He yelled that. That's awesome. Yes. If you knew Mike, you could just hear his voice. That was one of his almost his know, sayings. sayings. <laughs> if anybody started to come up with some idea of how to do something, that was his first response. I like him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, but you have to remember, about right up until the time that, that Mike took over, the data input to Gopher was still on punched cards. Oh, no way. So you're manually, you know, basically digitizing a log and then punching it up on cards and then running the card oh deck. And that wasn't going to happen. No. So <laughs> we had to come start coming up with a way to bring in digital log data and then process it, inter- process it internally and make all the corrections mm-hmm. and be able to generate usable mechanical properties logs from incomplete input data. And huh. that was, a, again, about a 10 or 15-year project to get to the point where you give me a gamma ray, I can make up everything else I need. You want Poisson's ratio, Young's modulus, stress, hmm. anything else, well, gamma ray is good. We'll use that. And sometimes that works better than this complete log suite with sonic anisotropy and all the other crap that people Depends spend. who's steering. <laughs> yeah. But then you have the the geologists and the geochemists trying to, most of the time they don't even understand what kind of input they should have to this kind of a, what we're doing now for completion design, cube development, multi-wall, all that stuff. Well, they're siloed. The yeah, engineers kept them out of the conversation, which is why the necessity for integrated teams is becoming more apparent yeah. because we need to understand the rock. Right. And when I teach classes, I always kind of joke about, yes, I know it's unpleasant, <laughs> but we have to talk to geologists sometimes. <laughs> and actually, when we can get a, a, a an operator to bring in an integrated team, bring in the petrophysicists, the mm-hmm. log analysts, the geologists, the geophysicists, and the completions and reservoir engineer, get them all in the same room. Yeah. Sometimes it's for the first time. For the first time still? Yeah. Still. Oh, my God. And they realize they're, they're not really speaking the same language, but once you start going working through the workflow, they say, hey, I can see how this integrates. Mm-hmm. I can see how we can provide value to yeah. the rest of the team. And It makes you just want to go to upper management and slap them around a little bit. Yep. Not going to lie. <laughs> and it doesn't seem to work. Because usually <laughs> after when you do that, you get a lot of excitement, a lot of buy-in, and then about a month or two later, it's kind of gone. Because they're back, back in their silos. Yeah, they're back and, in their silos. They're yeah. back in their culture. Yep. Interesting. So what is your advice for the technical team? What's the one common thing you're seeing them just not get right that you're having to fix when it comes to frack analysis? God, everything. Oh. <laughs> um, they really don't understand the the, the poor pressure, uh, especially this parent-child effect. I still read these wonderful articles in the, in the JPT or journal Oh, or they're whatever. coming back. Oh, it's such a mystery. Nobody understands parent-child interactions and frack hits. And are you are you referring to a few articles that came out the other week? Because that, <laughs> I think that was the title. Such yeah, a mystery. Such a mystery. <laughs> and it's not. I mean, we've been modeling this for years now since we started seeing it and started doing it. There's nothing mysterious about it if you understand the pressure distribution caused mm-hmm. by production. 
So let's go back to the reservoir models. Yeah. And this is getting into the, you know, what what is or is there an SRV and what is the system permeability and how far out does the pressure transient go? When yes. do the fractures All those answers. What are they? Please tell me. Is there an SRV? How far does pressure transient go? Like, I need all of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, from my understanding of this, which seems to work every time I try to do it, um, when we hydraulically fracture these kinds of unconventional reservoirs, mm -hmm. we got two two components. We got the hydraulic fracture itself with its conductive prop and pack, and then we got the deformed rock around it. Yes. And we're not just doing a fracture anymore on a vertical well. We're doing fractures sometimes down to 10, 12 feet apart, which is literal insanity. And Very we're doing, <laughs> you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 stages on a well, and then we're doing that on all the offset wells. It's the hammer effect. The, <laughs> yes, we're going to shatter the earth. And, and in effective effect we do, because if you take a, a volume of rock between two adjacent fractures, even if they're reasonably spaced, like 30 feet apart, mm -hmm. and both of those fractures are propagating, then what we're doing is essentially compressing the rock and fluids between those two fracture walls, mm -hmm. right? So we're putting in excess of a thousand PSI net pressure on the fracture phase. Yeah. And we're taking that little volume, that little sliver of rock, and we're compressing it. So what happens to the pore pressure? Well, the pore pressure has to go up yeah. a lot based mm -hmm. on the compressibility of the pore fluids. So what happens to the net stress in the rock? Well, it goes down to damn near zero. So now we have a zero net stress condition and uh, massive axial load, mm -hmm. what happens to the rock? It fails in shear. It fails in shear all over the place, at bedding planes, at joints, and any weak planes in the rock. And we probably have, in a, if it's in a source rock shale, which may be very, very close to its expulsion pressure anyway, when yeah. you jack up the pressure even more, you generate spontaneous expulsion fractures through mm -hmm. the whole system. Now, these aren't big. No, but they're, they're still secondary. And they're all over the place. Yeah. Really, really high frequency. Yeah. And very small aperture. So you have to consider that you in modeling. You have to consider them. And the volume of rock that we're deforming isn't just the effective length of the fracture. It goes all the way out to the gross created length, mm -hmm. which means it's going all the way across the section and into the next section and then overlap by every other stage and every other well in the system. So. Mm -hmm. We're taking these volumes of rock, and this is something that I really like with the fiber optic strain gradient measurements that are coming out now, yeah. is you see that section of rock compressed, relaxed during fracture closure, compressed again by the next stage, relaxed again, compressed again, relaxed again. So you're seeing again. it when it's happening, almost yeah. like real time. Right. That's awesome. But, I mean, again, consider a rock that in the lab do that. Jack the pore pressure up to where you have almost zero net stress on the system, and then accordion it about 30 times where you compress it and relax it, it's going to be almost rubble by the oh, time it is you're rubble. done. <laughs> you know, that's the enhanced, what I, I don't like the term SRV either because that implies there's a, there's a relatively finite volume around the fractures True. that is a stimulated reservoir volume. I like the term enhanced permeability region because when you actually do ray transient analysis or reservoir simulation, Dual porosity, dual permeability models really don't apply mm -hmm. because 
the poor volume of that fra secondary fracture system is negligible. In one of the publications they did, I calculated it's like 10 to the minus 5 mm -hmm. is the fracture porosity. Mm -hmm. So you don't see a dual porosity reservoir effect. Mm -hmm. What you just see is an uplifted system permeability. Yeah. And which is fine. We, and which is what we get from a defit. If you yeah. do the defit right, pump it at a high enough rate, look at the leak off rate into the altered rock around the rated hydraulic fracture, that's your system permeability. Mm -hmm. Put that in. I had keep having people, especially the reservoir simulation guys, well, how big is that? How far out does it go? It's the whole damn section. It's everything. <laughs> it's everything. It's the whole reservoir now is an enhanced permeability system. Because what do they the call it? Super perm over overseas? <laughs> yeah, that was a whole other thing because they refused to admit that that natural fractures existed. So oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> super permeability systems. You yeah. just made my day because I was screaming that on the last few of my old projects. So haha, you heard it from him. He's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in the old Kraft and Hawkins book, did you use Kraft and Hawkins? Probably not. It's, it's right uh, there. Well, I mean, I was, was trained by Miss Skimmons, so yeah. she'll look at my old homework. If, <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if if mine's used it because Kraft and Hawkins that I have on my shelf right there was published in 1957. Oh no, we did not use that. Okay. <laughs> there was a lot of really good engineering done back then. <laughs> Then in that that could be your recommended read. <laughs> yeah, it would, would be that one and, and Leverson's Geology of Petroleum. Those are the two best books in the world. <laughs> but in that uh, Kraft and Hawkins, there's a page that he, he looks at the, basically the Navier-Stokes equation for flow in a parallel wall crack, and mm -hmm. then he equates that to Darcy's equation, and mm -hmm. it is a direct translation. That's cool. Because those, the aperture of a crack squared length squared is the effect of permeability. Mm -hmm. It's basically Ka delta P over mu L is Q. I love that you have that memorized. <laughs> yep. But the other cool thing is when you work through it in consistent units, you find out that the equivalent permeability of a crack is 54 million Darcy's times the aperture in inches squared. What? So a thousandth of an inch crack <gasps> has an effective permeability of 54 Darcy's. What? Yeah. That would make my modeling so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. So it doesn't take very many little tiny cracks in mm -hmm. there. And, and again, one of the papers I think that Jennifer and I wrote just did a simple parallel flow calculation. What if you had matrix blocks and what if you had thousands of an inch aperture cracks? And if you start out with a hundred nanodarcy matrix and you have the equivalent of one one thousandth of an inch aperture crack every 50 feet mm -hmm. on the surface of your fracture, the integrated system permeability you'll see is a tenth of a millidarcy, mm -hmm. not a hundred nanodarcies. <laughs> and that's why when we get the defits in all these so-called unconventional reservoirs, we get permeabilities in the 20, 30, 40 microdarcies, something like that. That's so cool. And then you plug it into the interference equation, the radius, transient radius of investigation equation, you say, oh, my fractures are 30 feet apart. And if you put oil in the system with a 30 microdarcy system enhanced permeability and you put them on production, they interfere with each other in three days. <laughs> Is so, it really 30 feet apart? <laughs> yeah. So basically the whole area around the well, you're mm -hmm. basically building a cylinder around the well, which depletes in a matter of days. Yeah. And then... That steep decline. Yep. And then everything has to move from further and further and further out in the reservoir. Mm-hmm. 
And if you use that permeability, you can pretty much calculate when one wellbore interferes with the next wellbore, which is 300 feet away or something like oh, that. Oh, closer now. Yes, so closer now. Thank you, wine racking. Yes. <laughs> and it actually fits observation. Stuart Cox did a whole bunch of statistical analysis, and uh, he found that for the worst case that he did was the Eagleford. Mm -hmm. It's got really higher system permeability, and it's highly yeah. overpressured. Yeah. And people were downspacing, like, suicidally. And so the, <laughs> they're doing that in Delaware yeah, and, now and they're in doing Midland. It in Delaware, and now they're doing it, yes. The whole industry is bent on self-destruction. Suicidal spacing. <laughs> yep. So his P50 on his statistical distribution of, like, 1,000 wells, uh, they were hitting interference in nine months. That's really, really quickly. Really quickly. But... Everybody was cheering, right? Because we got really high IP and we got really high you know, acceleration of recovery. And wrong the wells KPIs. Are... Wrong KPIs. Yep. <laughs> and we're just destroying these these reservoirs mm -hmm. because we're chasing the you know 30, 60 day IPs. So That's... whose fault is that? Because I see Wall Streets turning their backs. Uh, P&Es are changing their exit strategies and they're blaming the reservoir engineer. And I've no. been told to jack up, you know, make it look better than it is, change my B factor, change my D. Yeah. What's your opinion on this? Whose fault is it? Should I be blaming the drillers, the completions, or management? No, you should be blaming Wall Street because they're the ones that started it. Wall okay. Street and the CEOs. See, Back before we already talked about the devastation of the 80s when we lost basically everybody in everybody. the industry. Before that, the industry was run by engineers and geologists who understood technology. Yeah, not that's by money. Not by money. That's when it changed, and mm -hmm. that's when we brought in all the MBAs and all of the investment <laughs> analysts, and that's the whole industry changed. Mm -hmm. And we've been on a tightrope since then because... We're actually still trying to recover from the '80s. Well, reserves. We're yeah. actually trying to, you know, maintain supply. Mm -hmm. But the CEOs, you know, what's what's driving them is, oh, next quarterly analyst report. You know, that's the only thing that matters. Keep the stock up. Yeah. Exactly. It's, yeah. This and that's why we're getting to, the high peaks and the low lows so quickly. Yep. It's all short term. Um, I won't tell you who it was, an operator that's... Oh, come on, tell me. No, I can't. <laughs> because this is this leads into a whole bunch of other issues with the, the data analytics and the multivariate regression analysis basically <laughs> driving our brains you know, for us. Like somebody said, we used to, a couple of years ago, we did spreadsheet rack designs where we mm -hmm. just put in stuff in Excel and yeah, yeah. work out how many pounds per foot, gallons per foot. Now yeah, we've yeah. gone a step dumber than that now we have you know analytical <laughs> statistical computer programs doing uh -huh. the spreadsheets for us oh we yeah even, we do <laughs> yeah so we've lost all sense of of actual engineering but so they've got this uh big data analytics package to make all their completions decisions for them and the only thing that's driving it their goal their metric is how many hours per day can we keep the fleet pumping to minimize downtime, oh. and how many stages per day can we get done? That's their metric. That's the metric. That's Nobody the even mentions production. Nobody That's even mentions economic value or recovery of resources. It's how fast approach. can we screw this system up <laughs> yeah. to the point there where we, we just 
destroy all the potential that the reservoir has to deliver. Because we can make this last so much longer, less steep declines if they just did the engineering. Mm -hmm. I sometimes I feel really kind of foolish and naive because I still remember when I was doing my doctoral defense, and you know probably Craig Van Kirk, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was the department head at the time. And he sometimes, it was a little pompous, but he said, well, you're going to, you're supposed to be getting a doctor of philosophy degree, so tell me about your philosophy of petroleum <laughs> engineering. And That's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah. So I naively said, well, in my view, as, as an engineer, you know, we're basically stewards of these resources. And every reservoir at Discovery has a certain potential to provide energy, and it should be our goal to maximize that potential and maximize the recovery. That's what an engineer should do. Yes. That changed in about the 1980s. Now the engineer is responsible for keeping the stock price up, mm -hmm. maximizing not even cash flow. We've, we've lost cash flow. So we're marketing perception. We're basically have really created a Ponzi scheme. We're, oh. we're jacking the stock price up. We had, when I was still at Marathon, we had the CEO come in and give the research group, you know, pat on the back, thank you for all your wonderful technical work and blah, 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 blah. And then he actually said, that's your job. My job is to sell stock. So keep doing <laughs> what you're doing, but I don't care, basically. And that was when I knew the uh, industry had changed. Yeah, that would be a pivot point. Yep. So when, in your history, when did frack become the enemy of the environment? And he's, he's laughing, and I can guarantee you Jennifer Miskimmons is driving in her car and yes, laughing at this too. So. I'm sure this came straight from, <laughs> from Dr. J. Um, when? I mean, when did the whole environmental nonsense Well, start? I mean, it's, it's, it's blamed for, uh, you know, climate change and we're heating the planet. Yeah. And it all goes back to fracking. Right. So why is fracking the enemy? Because it's an easy target, because the industry has done really poorly for public relations. People don't understand it. There's virtually no public information available uh, about what hydraulic fracturing does that anybody would pay attention to or, or read. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's, it's a really easy target. It's something, it's a, it's a, bad sounding word yeah it does sound um, like a bad word but that yeah. might be why i like it yeah. <laughs> yeah the other thing that every time i see one of those damn papers i have to explicitly say there is no k in fracturing there is no k <laughs> in fracturing you cannot if you put that in there it's you're announcing that you're stupid and you don't know what you're talking about and everything that you say after that should be ignored yeah no i like that if you can't spell it there's no point to complain about it <laughs> yep we used to laugh about that. He probably can't even spell frack. No, no, no they can't anymore. <laughs> they really and can't. They really can't. <clears throat> so I don't know when it started, but it's all tied in with the whole, what I consider just a, a hoax, a myth of the whole climate change and, you know, whatever you want to call it. Fear-mongering, yeah. <clears throat> Did you see, it was about just a week ago, maybe the, two weeks ago. The March? No, the AOC was in Colorado. Did you see that? Yeah, and she was taking pictures of heat signatures right. coming off and of the Right, and calling them poisonous fumes, destroying 
how yeah. so here's yeah. my question how close did she have to get for that picture poisonous fumes yeah honey no yeah you're so sweet bless and, your well, heart the, like Chris Wright pointed out, I guess they interviewed him, and what she was photographing was an electric rig during <laughs> drilling operations. They weren't fracturing, nope. and there weren't even in diesel fumes. Was, God bless yeah. Chris Wright. <laughs> so um, it's, it's just, it's like everything else associated with the environmental movement. It's, 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 it's fear-mongering, it's a myth, uh, it's all for basically political purposes because you know there are people making a bunch of money off of this oh yeah and but the thing is is when she's called out when any of them are called out look we'll be the first to admit when we're wrong mm -hmm. but if they you don't admit, admit when you're wrong come on now you're it's false na narrative yep so well, they what can't is it admit fake news <laughs> yeah they can't admit that they're wrong because the whole the whole story is based on absolute nonsense and, and <laughs> that kind of got me fired up yeah who let her out here anyway i mean good lord oh it was boulder that's right that's boulder yeah, yeah. it's boulder well thanks boulder mm -hmm. <laughs> good old people's republic of boulder they're doing a lot of good for all of us yeah. where do you see our industry going let's say five years because we are seeing m&a's almost everyone yeah. i know has been quote unquote laid off some for the right reasons some because there really is no cash flow yeah so what's happening because this isn't what we saw in the 90s this is something different yeah i consider this a whole lot more personal because it really is directed at the way we're overstimulating, over drilling over capitalizing and it's a result of the last what five eight years of chasing the high IPs, and that's that's what we've done now. We chasing the one twenty dollar oil. Yeah, which we killed. Uh, <laughs> I mean, really, the industry is responsible for that. Oh yeah, over drilling, over producing again. Drill trying, baby drill. Yeah, yeah, and I hate the the politicians. I'm sorry to say this, saying that oh we're you know energy independent and we're going to be an exporter and we're going to have all the. That's all crap. All the all the booked reserves are complete nonsense. Yeah, they're, they're fake. False. They're never will never be produced. Those reserves do not exist. Yeah. Uh, wells are going to become uneconomic to operate within probably two, maybe three years of being put on production. Oh, sometimes faster. Sometimes faster. Yeah. Yeah. What and I've. Talk to quite a few of what I consider really good reservoir engineers, and it's kind of the point that I've gotten to, is if you're going to run realistic economics, run them on three years, because anything beyond that is probably not ever going to exist, and it probably has no actual value anyway. I always but have to predict up to 20 to 50 years out. I was out. just going to say that. But I'm everybody hoping to wants be retired. To use 20, 30, 40, 50. So I've, I've seen a couple of... of uh, presentations where people are desperate to sell their acreage oh, where yeah. they've got 100 year extrapolated declines <gasps> 100 year i have not seen year. that yet yep y'all stop doing that you just look foolish you do and <laughs> people aren't that stupid I and hope, I hope even not. the best part too and you mentioned jiggering your b factors and all that best mm -hmm. part is they're doing this based on extrapolating the first usually six months of production where the B is like 1.7 to mm -hmm, 2, mm -hmm. which basically means you are in transient flow. You <laughs> cannot, by law, you cannot extrapolate a transient flow condition using a decline curve and get an EUR number because that's going to predict infinite recovery 
on every well if you run it out long enough. <laughs> it's just absolutely wrong. That's something that the industry absolutely needs to fix. I was just reading yesterday, I think, uh, about the SEC trying to put together a, a new set of rules for reserve estimations, and they missed it. They, they didn't get it. I mean, no. that's... But that's what happens when yeah. you put a panel like that in charge. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So the future of the industry, what I what I believe is that we're in a uh, we're in a, a bubble, mm-hmm. uh, and it's going to be really really short lived because we can't you can't keep drilling and fracking at the rate that we're going on now with the declines, with the way the destruction that's being wreaked in the in the reservoirs right now, because we're dropping the pressure so fast. Permian Basin, I'm sorry, you guys should be in prison, because we're, we're <laughs> look at how much gas is being flared, right? They're blowing off all the reservoir energy. Oh, yeah, they're, they're killing flaring it. flaring it. The pressures are dropping just precipitously. Oh, I mean, yeah. These reservoirs are going to be dead in a year or two, and... There's nothing you can do to fix them. Well, they hadn't figured out enhanced recovery yet, which is why they need to, like, talk to me because I'm working on it. <laughs> well, enhanced recovery in that kind of a system is really tough, especially... Yeah, it's going to be hard. Especially <laughs> when you've got fractures interconnecting oh, all yeah. the wells across the system. I've you talked to a couple of different up. companies who've t- started the gas injection, right, repressurization. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Yes, yeah, you know, energize the oil, thin the oil increase the mobility, repressurize mm-hmm. the reservoir, get a surge. You know what the average time it takes from the time you start injecting gas in a horizontal well until it breaks through and hits the offset well? Like three days. Three hours. <laughs> it's like well, as soon I mean, as you rule... start pumping, you open the fractures and boom. There well, it that's goes. just it. Yeah, the rule with enhanced recovery is if you if there are so many fractures there, don't worry about it. So don't destroy our reservoirs so we can't even use that option. It's right. ridiculous. Yep. So do you think because of this, uh, there might somewhere down the line be a shift back towards some of our more conventional? Absolutely. Yep. How soon? I need to go buy some houses around some of them fields. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, okay. What I, what I predict is in the next, again, say three to five years, I doubt that we'll be able to maintain su- sufficient supply. I don't think we can drill and frack ahead of the declines fast mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. And what that will do pretty quickly is uh, cause the oil price to skyrocket again. And once that happens, then EOR and application of hopefully more rational drilling and stimulation mm-hmm. technology can be applied to all of the existing conventional reservoirs because we've got a lot of conventional reservoirs with 80 plus percent of the reserves still in the ground Mm -hmm. and that's going to be a much much more attractive easier target than face it the reservoirs were they were chasing now can't really get a whole lot worse there's we're about (laughs) to the bottom we can't make them worse (laughs) we're about to the bottom of the barrel but we've got good reservoirs Mm But all the people who understand real reservoir engineering and how to develop and, and handle mm-hmm. conventional reservoir, they're all gone. Yeah. They don't care now. <laughs> and so we're going to have to I know to like have, five of them there that are left. <laughs> yeah. 
So we're going to have to train a whole new group of, of engineers on how to do engineering again. Yeah, exactly. Go back 100%. to the 1950s, 1960s, learn about do it by hand gravity man. segregation, <laughs> learn about traps, learn about migration, mm -hmm. learn about real reservoirs. I can't and, wait. <laughs> yeah. I'm honestly, I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. So mm -hmm. what is the best bit of career advice that was given to you? That, and then what's the best bit of career advice you can pass forward? Something that's actionable. <laughs> and I'm trying to think if I was ever given any career oh, advice. Oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, like I say, the, a lot of the career advice I've gotten is out. Don't waste your time on fracturing. That's, that's a dead technology. Um, I'm so glad you didn't listen. <laughs> because of you, I have a career. So thank you. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, what I would say to people now, and I've had a couple of guys in classes that I teach that just got out of school, just got a job mm -hmm. in this environment. Like you say, where everybody's getting laid off. Laid off or shit canned as they call it but y'all call it shit can yeah i love that i'm gonna start using that you got shit can that's amazing yeah throw a little twang in there yep but what do you do about it well yeah you try to try to be a competent engineer which in this environment right now i was gonna say honest and competent engineer but that's damn near impossible right now because right now yeah you know that management doesn't want to hear the truth <laughs> and and I've I've had this oh another story. Again, I won't say what operator, but they were trying to uh or their management was trying to convince them that a sixteen well per section cube development was the right thing to do and they had a type curve. This is what all the wells are gonna follow this type curve, right? I think I know what you're talking about, but I won't say anything. <laughs> yeah. So well, whole, I can get into a whole new another diatribe on type curves. So anyway, <laughs> I took their type curve and I thought, I'll just let me just digitize this and put it into my software and, and see what it is. And I went back in and I said, what your type curve shows is a B of two in an infinite acting reservoir. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's never going to interfere with another well. It's never going to go into decline. It's, I said, this is absolute absurdity. Mm -hmm. and, this, and the comment from the reservoir engineer who did the type curve, which I didn't know, uh, was, oh, I was hoping that would be my little secret. Oh, <gasps> no, they actually admitted it. <laughs> yeah. But at the Brilliant. same time, this is what management is forcing them to do, mm -hmm. right? This is our, you have to make a projection for our, our recovery. Correct. Or, and this is what it is. Another company sent their type curves, and they wanted me to design a completion stimulation for well with a certain spacing that would meet the type curves. And mm -hmm. I said, I, I there's no way mm -hmm. that I can do it with the reservoir properties that you've given me. Yeah. Said, so can you send me the actual production data from the wells so I can analyze They just analyze tried to it. hide that out of there and they just go off the They just type had curve? the type curve. Yeah. So they sent me the actual, Wrong direction. actual data. And I didn't even have to analyze it. I just looked at an average. It said none of the wells, real wells, produce even half of what the type curve is, is says they're going to predict. Like mm -hmm. where, this where is why the money's come mad. From? <laughs> where did this so-called type curve come from? And then the response was, well, yeah, we know it's just it's just nonsense. Just ignore the type curve and just look at the real wells and see if you can improve them, which probably is kind of the right goal. Right? Yeah, that, that we... should have been the first goal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. So It's you're... rife through the whole industry, though. 
I mean, that's just not one or two off, you know, companies. That's almost everybody that I talk to does that. Their reserves are based on a B of 1.8 for however many years they choose to extrapolate it. Yep. Their type curves are meaningless. They're yep. usually based on the parent well with nothing around it. Yeah. If they're 100%. based on reality at all. Yeah. Um, well, you so, should have generational type curves if you're going to go that route. Yeah. I mean, that's just, you're or stealing actually, from each other, so you may as well. do the calculations. It's not that <laughs> tough. You know, say, what's going to happen if I space at 200 feet, at 300, at 500, at 600? Because you can draw a box around a well, and that's <laughs> how much it's going to be able to touch, and that's how much it's going to be able to recovery, recover. And if we know the system permeability, we should be able to, get a reasonable engineering estimate of how fast it's going to drain that box. So do you think engineers should start stepping up and pushing back? Absolutely. I don't see any do it, so. No, they don't because they all want jobs. That was <laughs> Well, same. guess what? I've got news for you right now. You yeah, might not have, not have one. Have a job. <laughs> yeah. Did you read that, or me may have been there, that Wall Street Journal article about the, there was a forum on this whole reserve stuff. John Lee was the speaker, and who's actually, I guess, doing a talk here in, for SBE in a week or two. Hmm. But uh, he was explaining the problems with the hyperbolic decline curves and the you know, B's over one and how stupid it is, and we know it's all wrong. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, somebody in the back of the audience, you know, yelled, well, why are we doing this? If we know it's wrong, we're engineers, we know this is wrong. Mm-hmm. And somebody else in the audience stood up and said, because we all own stock in these companies. <laughs> they did not. <laughs> Which is the answer. Because I mean, it that is, is a Ponzi answer, scheme. But that is right? amazing. Yeah. I'm That's so why glad we're that doing happened. It. So the key is know when to sell your stock. Mm-hmm. Right? And right now, no one does. No one wants to sell right now. No. <laughs> no. But it's already too late for some companies. But That's fine. M&A should happen. We, well, it's more acquisition. I don't know if yeah. you believe in mergers, but I don't necessarily it's, believe it's in acquisitions, them. acquisitions, yeah. So for your day-to-day, 12 a.m. to 11.59 p.m., how are you staying organized? How are you not pulling your hair out? How are you not slapping around us completion and reservoir engineers that think we know it all? What are you doing to stay efficient, effective, and productive? What is your secret <sighs> sauce? <laughs> um work at work, relax at home, drink a lot, sleep late. I no. like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, what can I what can I say? I, I actually spend a lot of my time now still looking at future developments of the software, trying to integrate new diagnostic things like the the strain gradient, like the poor elastic effects, like the, what reveals chasing. When when are we seeing poor pressure effects? When are we actually seeing frack heads? How, how mm-hmm. are we affecting the whole net stress tensor in the reservoir as we superimpose all of these fracks? So there's a whole bunch of technology and, and development for the software that still needs to be done. And that's what keeps me sane, frankly. I like that that keeps you sane. Yes. But <laughs> that's a, you're a true engineer if that keeps you sane. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's what's fun. That's what Mike Conway always used to say. As long as it's fun, as long as I'm learning something, I'll keep doing it. Mm-hmm. When it's not fun anymore, it's time to quit. Fair. So the stuff that's not fun is dealing with, uh, you know, typical call new startup company. Oh, we bought this acreage. Well, right away I'm thinking there's a damn good reason somebody sold you that acreage. 
and <laughs> oh, we're gonna we're gonna do better than the previous operator, and we're gonna stimulate it more, and blah blah blah. And it's that's like, two guys no, in a cell phone. Just, Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's that's the frustrating part. Mm-hmm. How do I help these people? Yeah. And a lot of times I just want to say, there's nothing I can do. You have you have put yourself already in a hole. The reservoir is already destroyed. You shouldn't have bought it in the first place. I'm sorry. Yeah. But bigger stimulations are not going to fix your problem. You cannot. I like that. Yeah. Bigger is not always better. No, it rarely is. <laughs> but it's so easy when you do bigger and bigger jobs and tighter and tighter spacing and blah, 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 blah. Yes, your IP goes up. Well, it looks better. Yeah. Like it, it looks like the marketing material. Yep. So they don't like to talk about how much the decline goes out. Mm-hmm. They don't like to talk about how soon the wells interfere and how fast they fall on their faces and the fact that they've increased CapEx by 100% and haven't added any reserves at all. Because that's <laughs> in the future. That's yeah, somebody else's that's someone problem. someone else's problem. <laughs> exactly. And this is, I think, fundamentally what the problem with the industry is, and that's what has to change. It's, it's, we're at a pivot point. This might be the time it has to change. Yep. How many cups of coffee do you drink a day? One. That's it? That's it. I was hoping it was going to be like 25 or nope. something. <laughs> I have one in the morning, and that's it. And you work on, you know, go for simulations, improving them, and that keeps you normal. Yep. That's impressive, because the rest of us are not that way. <laughs> <laughs> we might have been messed up from our generation, though. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Do you happen to have a book, podcast, or other resource, and I know you mentioned one earlier, but can we go back to it, that you would recommend that has brought you value that you think is going to be an actionable item for the next engineer? Well, if we believe, which I do, that we're going to move back into conventional reservoirs, I highly recommend that engineers now, not geologists, that engineers find Leverson's Geology of Petroleum book and read it. That might be a very good suggestion. Yeah, because <laughs> I might go buy it. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the one of the best books in terms of actually understanding conventional reservoir physics, mechanics, hydrocarbon migration, mm-hmm. mobility, you name it. There are there are figures from that book that I still use to to talk about uh, prop and pack conductivity cleanup load recovery why it's not a mystery that we don't hardly ever get any any load water back if you understand <laughs> the stuff that's in leverson it's mm-hmm. not a mystery it's so uh, that's that's one book that i would certainly recommend unfortunately when you get into the fracturing literature you've got i mean the standard is probably that slumberger reservoir stimulation oh, third edition thing yeah that that, that's pretty much the state of the art <laughs> 20 years ago. And that's the state of the art that people think is, is current and real. Yeah. Um, it's a good foundation. There's a whole lot of stuff that needs to be rethought. Um, a lot of things we've learned since then and unconventionals um, that just people still don't want to, don't want to expect or accept like, the concept of the enhanced permeability region or the concept that you can actually measure the system permeability from a defit if you do it right. And there's just a lot of things that we have learned by experience that we have later backed up with theoretical understanding once we learned enough to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. But they're just not in the literature. Uh, one of the things that, that Jennifer pointed out from her long, long, long experience 
editing. How many longs was that? Three, I think, <laughs> for uh, the SP production journal. Uh, I don't know how many years she could she tolerated editing that thing, but <laughs> one of the comments that I remember making, and it could have been after a couple of margaritas, I'm not sure, but she said, if you find an SPE paper that has like five or six authors on it, there's a good bet that five of them never read the paper. Oh, I like that. That's because probably true. it's probably true. I mean, people put their names on papers for various reasons, not mm-hmm. because they've contributed to them. And the other thing people need to realize, which she pointed out, is SPE papers, journal presentations, or meeting presentations, all of that kind of stuff, are not peer-reviewed. Mm-hmm. So there's absolutely no uh, justification or no uh, validation that what's in those papers has any merit at all. And a lot We've of them are get back to peer review. crap. Yeah. You go to like the geologists and they would they would be aghast. How could you possibly publish something that wasn't <laughs> peer reviewed? But we do it the bulk of the literature, what we consider petroleum literature, is just crap. It's mm-hmm. not peer reviewed, probably should never have been written, never been presented. That's probably true. Even the stuff that gets into a journal that's supposed to be peer reviewed is not always mm-hmm. and, is, and is not reliable. Um, so I I have a real problem recommending okay. resources for people because I firmly believe that most of what has been published should not have been published. And you've got to be – I think this is the most constructive advice that I can offer is – Question what you read. Question what you read. <laughs> Apply the engineering smell test. If it doesn't smell right, if it doesn't seem rational – just ignore it. No matter how much your management likes the story behind it, mm-hmm. you should be. I mean, that's what an engineer should be capable of doing: is using judgment and experience to figure out what's real and what's not. Well, I think your recommendation of going back to geology is huge, and I think it puts more value on the integration of or, or the movement towards integrated teams. But for an engineer like me who wants to absorb all of your knowledge and expertise, how do we do the BNA classes? Where can we find you? How can someone question you from this podcast? What do we need to do? <laughs> so can you give us a little information about actionable steps that can get us better into Gopher? Yeah, well, our classes, we all we try to keep the class schedule updated on the website. which the, What's that website? The www.berry.net. Uh, so B-A-R-R-E-E dot net. Mm-hmm. Still is active. Uh, we're fighting to keep it active even after the Halliburton acquisition. And <laughs> we have our uh, both the Gopher uh, open classes and the theory classes mm-hmm. on there as they get scheduled. Awesome. Um, one you know, little hiccup in that is we've been doing so much internal training for Halliburton because we've got the whole company worldwide yeah. to try to bring up the speed. And so we're spending a lot more time with internal training, mm-hmm. but we're still offering out uh, av- available classes. I think there's a five day combined fracturing theory and go for use class. That'll be here in the office in, in Lakewood. It's in uh, November, November. Yeah. Okay. And that's on the website and that's, okay. that's open. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time today. You were really a titan of industry. Because of you, I was able to join a technical team and truly learn technical analysis, build my way up. So I cannot thank you enough for everything you've done for this industry. But your insights, I truly, I'm going to get you on a panel 
And we're going <laughs> to let you tear up some people. It's going to be awesome. So thank, thank you. you so much. You have just everything. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mm-hmm. One final closing comment. Yes, just sir. To, just to add to that, since you, you think I'm a, a, a value to the industry. I had a, Very much. A, a fairly young class in here, about 20 people, doing, I think it was a fracturing theory class. And uh, one of the attendees in the class, uh, when I came in and introduced myself, her comment was, oh, my God, you're still alive. (gasps) (laughs) So this is the downside of being a a, a, foundation in the industry. (laughs) (laughs) They all think you're dead. I don't know if that's amazing or not, but it's pretty damn funny. (laughs) So next time you're in a class, when he walks in, y'all, you did not see a ghost. <laughs> a good story. Well, thank you thank so you. much. Yep. Damn, what did y'all think of Dr. Barry? He is so on point. He is a straight shooter. He has no intention of sugarcoating a situation just to please an audience. I swear, we need more of him in industry, especially now. And I highly, highly suggest y'all check out his class in November He is a titan, and if you want to be successful, you might as well just shut up and learn something. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions for Dr. Bree, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Let me know, and we will be sure to circle back with him here soon. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.